Hello, everybody out there in radio listening landia. It's the Farm and Garden Show. I am your host, Elizabeth Archer, here as always on the first and third Thursdays and occasional fifth Thursday, which we do have this month, bringing you content related to farming and gardening and sometimes other things. Today, I have a returning guest in the studio with me. It's rare and exciting to have someone in the studio with me. It's my husband, local beekeeper, Carson Elmer, and we aren't totally sure if his microphone's working, so can you try to say hi, Carson? Hello, everybody, and uh, I'm glad to be back. Well, I can hear you and my headphones, and hopefully everyone else can too. Yep, I just checked. They can. Yay, hooray for the miracles of radio that works. Anyway, Carson has been on the show <laughs> a couple times with me. <clears throat> He is a very experienced beekeeper. He has been beekeeping since, what, you were 10 years old? Yeah, 10, 12 is like when I got my first hive. And locally runs Carson and Bees. And you know what? It's just always an interesting show when Carson and Bees comes on, when beekeeping topics come up. We always get a ton of calls. We will open the lines later. And... I want to say if you're a beekeeper and you're listening to this and you're like, really, Elizabeth, your husband again, I would love to have another beekeeper on the show. I would love to have anyone listening on the show. I'm open for guests. So email dj at kzyx.org, put farm and garden in the title, and that message will make it to me. And I, yeah, let's, let's get some other beekeepers or just, you know, any other farm or garden folks in the county or beyond on the show. The show is for everybody. And the reason I have Carson on is because he is a fun guest for me and also a very easy to book guest. <laughs> Together we share, of course, our beautiful daughter May, who is hanging out with some friends. And May, if you're listening, just, you know, we love you so much. All right, let's talk about beekeeping. Well, I would like to say it is like the perfect time of year to be talking about bees. Um, as uh, I'm sure everybody has seen, uh, things are starting to bloom. Um, and so bees are, bees are buzzing and, and getting busy when it's, when it's warm. Um, and everybody thinks that, oh, it's, uh, it's not quite spring, so it's not bee season. Well, bee season is here. And that's one of the things I learned kind of early on is that the seasons are kind of uh, ahead, where we think of winter, uh, the bees are, you know, in full swing. Uh, so as a commercial beekeeper, uh, things are just about to start kicking off and will be just the busiest time of year. Well, things have kicked off because as a commercial beekeeper, the biggest thing you do every year is almond pollination. Yes. So let's talk. Let's tell folks about maybe I should set the show up. I was a little distracted getting your mic to work. Um, we are going to talk today about winter beekeeping, almond pollination, spring beekeeping, including starting new hives. And we're going to take questions. So now people know what to expect. Can you talk about almond pollination, the process and what you've done so far this year? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh the almond pollination is the largest bee migration in the world. Um, it 
takes, don't quote me on this, but I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's somewhere around 85 plus percent of all of the bees in the nation come to California to pollinate almonds. Now, let's be clear. They're driven on trucks. They don't fly here. Yeah. It's a, mi- yeah. It's a migration against their will. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, they're put on semi-trucks loaded with forklifts. Uh, we have specialty forklifts that can drive into the orchards. Uh, they're all-terrain, four-wheel drive, pretty lightweight forklifts. Um, and they're, they're made for seasons like this year where it's, it's pretty wet in the orchard. So they're, they're brought in. Um, you load them up at night or evening or early morning. Um, Why do you have to load them? Well, if you ever look at a bee box during the day, the bees are flying. Uh, so if you load up a bee box during the day, which sometimes it happens, um, you know, unforeseen circumstances dictate, you know, things to happen sometimes, but I digress. Um, they, they come back to the hive at night. So if you want to get all of your bees in the bee box, uh, you got to load it up when they're all there. Um, Makes sense. You don't want to lose those precious bees. Nope. Especially not for almonds, uh, where every bee counts. Um, Oh, I lost track. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big subject. Almond pollination is a really big subject. So every what time of year do you put bees in the almonds? Um, if you're a real large operation, you start about the 10th to 15th of January, and you continue until all the bees are in. Um, for me, my operation's kind of small in comparison to a lot of people. Um, I just take... It really just takes me one big load to drive over. So it's kind of a one day thing for me. So I'm kind of dictated more by weather and my time. Um, but um, this year was dictated by weather by a lot of people. Um, and I actually went over and helped a friend of mine um, because he ran out of time and d- needed more people to move bees because the weather was not conducive for driving around in the orchards. Sure. So obviously it's been a really wet winter, which nobody is knocking. I think most of us are thrilled with the weather. Maybe not the bees. Can you talk about the impact of all this rain on the bees in the almonds or elsewhere? Uh, the bees, um, they, they do pretty well in, in the wetness you could say the the problem is they can't fly right they just stay inside yeah they just kind of stay inside the hive um keep things warm and eat lots of sugar um Mm. which can be a problem as a beekeeper because you have really strong hives and they're starving out um and there's lots of flowers around and you you just have to feed them because they're eating so much sugar that you know a, a long prolonged cold snap they they eat all the sugar in the hive and they starve so you say eat all the sugar in the hive are you talking about sugar that you as a beekeeper give them or are you talking about their honey stores or both well both um if if they don't have honey then we have to feed them sugar um to, to, that's their carbohydrate of their diet which allows them to to fly and keep warm um there's also pollen patties, which we feed, but that is more to um, promote um, growth. Um, the, the baby bees. Baby bees, basically. Are yeah. made out of protein. 
protein, yeah. You know, this is something that Carson and I love to tell everybody. The whole trope about bears being after <clears throat> hives for honey. It's not the honey they're after. It's the baby bees. They're little protein snacks. So, just FYI, bears are eating baby bees, not honey. Well, I'm sure they get some honey in their mouth, too. Yeah, I'm sure it's a... Uh you know an additional sweetness to it but um they're I, in my career i've had uh two bear attacks i guess um and yeah the the hives get strewn everywhere and the honey is left intact but all of the brood is licked clean yep it's good protein snack so what about in terms of almond pollination because almonds only bloom for a certain amount of time what happens if it's raining practically that whole time uh that's a an interesting um point um the bees do a phenomenal job at what they do and it only takes I want to say two or three days of flying weather. And that doesn't mean necessarily mean that it's like 80 degrees out. That just means that it's like 60 degrees. Like a day like today, they're flying. If it's, I mean, it's sunny and 60 in Ukiah. So maybe that's what it's doing in the Central Valley. Yeah, it's, it's the Central Valley is usually a little bit warmer um, than we are here in the wintertime. Um, and they they'll get out and fly. Um, the, the cutoff is 55 degrees and without the sun, you can pretty much, um, calibrate your thermometer to it. Cause as soon as the bees start flying, it's 55 degrees. They're very precise creatures. Yeah. <laughs> and then with a little bit of sun, you know, they are fully active very quickly. Um, and it's, it's amazing. Cause you know, there's, if you've, ever seen pictures or been out there excuse me on highway 20 um or the central valley this time of year which i should note that they are in full bloom right now so the almonds are yeah yeah so if you if you're planning a trip now's the time to go because it's um very pretty and it smells amazing there yeah it's uh i was i'm always pleasantly surprised when i go over and just it's like a breath of fresh air, but it's sweetness. So the bees stay in the almonds. They get in a little bit before bloom and they stay through the whole bloom. And there's like early blooming varieties and late blooming varieties. So they're there for kind of a while. How long will your bees be in the almonds this year? Oh, I didn't do the calculations. They were there. Oh, I want to say three weeks before the first blooms. Um, but because of the weather and the look, the orchard that I'm in, um, we made the call to, to go in early. Um, and I think I'll talk about that a little bit later, but, um, it's generally four to five weeks of bloom time. And you want the bees in there the whole time, even though it only takes two or three good <clears throat> days of flying to pollinate all those almonds. Yeah. I mean, if you're a, an almond farmer, you don't want to pay for you know, half the time, um, that's, it's actually quite a big bill for them. So they want to see bees flying on all the flowers all the time. Um, cause they want the biggest crop possible. Um, and I, I guess that's a good point to mention is that, uh, almonds need, uh, pollination, whereas apples and our pears and some, you know, plums, uh, they don't, 
like if you don't have bees around, they can still pollinate. Like there's a little bit of wind pollination, um, and very, you know, limited bee pollination and the, the, the tree gets pollinated just fine. Uh, with almonds, if you don't have bees in the orchard, um, or the orchard right next to you, I guess you, you can kind of play that game if you really wanted to, but there's, there's other reasons not to, um, that you have uh 15% of a crop. Wow. So yeah, you're looking at what 85% better crop than, um, than without bees. Well, that explains why 85% plus of the nation's bees are in the central Valley right now. Yeah. <laughs> and that's big business for beekeepers. I mean, <clears throat> for our little bee business, we, the almond, like we definitely make money from honey sales throughout the year, but almond pollination is really what keeps the business afloat. And one of the reasons I think Carson was saying, you don't want to play the game of hoping your neighbors get bees is because what happens, Carson, if you can't show that you have a contract for pollination services as an almond grower and your crop fails? Well, it's uh, crop insurance, right? So the crop insurance dictates that you need crop insurance or you need uh, pollination. Because um, if you don't have that, if you don't have pollination, then you your crop's going to fail. You don't have a crop. Um, and so they want to see that if your crop has failed, um, that you did everything you you possibly could to have a crop um and so they they dictate um it's about two hives per acre of almonds so i don't i don't have the numbers of how many acres there are in of almonds in the central valley and it fluctuates every year but it's a lot of acres it's i mean let's just call a spade a spade it's too many acres it's an ecological disaster. I'm not going to try and act like just because our small business relies on almond pollination that I'm thrilled that the Central Valley is filled with the monocrop of almond trees. So if you want to call in and talk about that, it's totally fine. But we're not over here thinking that the monocrop of almonds is, is, a, good, is a good thing for our environment. I will say the argument about almonds being such heavy water users, I think is a, gets a little bit... It gets a bad rap. It gets simplified because if you think about water per calorie, almonds are actually a very effective crop. They produce a ton of calories yeah, for calories relatively little water. But yeah, they need a lot of water. They've taken up a lot of, a lot of land. It's not great. Um, there are some interesting things, though, that almond growers are doing. I would say, and Carson, correct me if I don't have an accurate understanding of this, but... Not that long ago, almond growers weren't necessarily thinking about what the bees needed or what would be good for them while they were in there. And now there's a lot of attention on the health of bees and what they need to thrive. And that's not only not spraying pesticides while they're flying, which you would think would have been a no-brainer, but really wasn't until fairly recently. But there are also there are tons of programs and initiatives and education around planting hedgerows and other food sources, you know, making sure the bees have water, making sure that things other than the almonds are blooming around them to provide more food sources, forage sources for the bees. So 
I don't know if there's a question in there, but if you just want to share your own thoughts about sort of the evolution of the almond orchard's relationship to bees and things that are happening in terms of hedgerow planting and other initiatives. Yeah, so uh, the almond industry really needs bees and the bee industry really needs almonds. Uh, so it's kind of a, a symbiotic relationship where, um, you know, if if the bee industry is failing, you know, so too is the almond industry. It's going to, you know, fail next. Um, so they've really partnered with, uh, there's a few programs. Uh, one in spe- specifically is called Project Apis M. And Apis mellifera is a honeybee. It's the... Um, the name for a honeybee, or at least our honeybee. There's others um, around the world, but the one that we use is Apis mellifera. So Project Apis M is a program designed for research um, to help uh, beekeepers, and in turn that helps almond growers. Um, and so one of their programs that they're funding is seeds for bees. Um, and if you're a, doesn't even necessarily have to be, um, an almond grower. If you're a farmer, um, they have a seed program where they will, um, donate or uh, give money, not necessarily money, but uh, free seed, uh, to, uh, farmers to grow the seed for bees. Um, and in the almond orchard, it works, um, you know, like I said, my bees were two or three weeks, they were in the orchard two or three weeks before the almond bloom. And the idea is if you can plant things like mustard and vetch, um, they have seed mixes and they have, I don't know, quite a few different plants in there. Um, and if you can plant things in the orchard, for the bees to, it helps keep the bees in your orchard and the bees aren't flying across the way to, uh, to get pollen and nectar from other plants. Uh, it keeps the bees in the orchard, which is beneficial and it also feeds the bees. Yeah. That was one of the almond orchard growers sort of main concerns for a long time about planting hedgerows was, well, if we plant other food sources, then they won't go to the almonds, but that has proved to be absolutely the opposite case, which is if you have hedgerows, your orchard actually gets pollinated at a higher level. And part of that is because you're keeping the bees in. And another part is because bees actually really like almonds can you talk about bees' sort of relationship to the almond um, flower and the fact that it's such an early blooming food source? Yeah, it's one of the the first trees to bloom. Um, and back in the day, the relationship was uh, almost opposite as it is now, where you know, a few beekeepers. Um, you wouldn't want to put their bees in the almonds because they were the first first things to bloom. And if you could put your bees in there, your bees would build up faster. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, beekeepers would put their bees in the orchard, wanting to put their bees in the orchard. And then as more uh, almond farmers planted more and more almonds, 
they realized that, oh, we actually need the bees. And so they... Well, and they couldn't rely on the native pollination services anymore because they had destroyed all of the habitat. Yeah, that's one of the downsides of monocropping and the practices of, of almond growing. Uh, it doesn't allow for a lot of other things to grow. So your, your ecosystem is pretty limited. But the bees like almonds. Yeah, that's they're into it. They like it's it's one of their preferred food sources. I mean, bees are can be picky. If there are options, they will go to a source that they like better than another one, even if they have to fly a little further away. Yeah, they do the calculations. So if they can fly twice as far but get five times the calories or you know the amount of resource, then they'll they'll go to whatever's going to bring in more net profit basically and another benefit for beekeepers is that almond honey which they're you know they bring in a bunch of almond nectar and it gets them sort of shored up for the winter and ready to go strong starting in spring and they put away a bunch of you know almond honey stores for themselves almond honey to humans is disgusting it's like a little joke you can play on people to say, hey, try this new, you know, amazing varietal of honey. And you hand them a teaspoon of almond honey and just watch their reaction. <laughs> uh, I mean, I will say it. the first taste of it is delicious. It's one of the better honeys I've tasted. That's the initial taste. Now, as that taste kind of fades, in comes this bitter kind of aftertaste that really takes over your mouth and it is it's not great uh <laughs> the question i always get is oh so you, you you can produce almond honey well yes and no the bees are building up and it's still cold so they're using a lot of um of, of that sugar to keep warm uh so it's you don't really produce almond honey that you can pull out of the hive and harvest um they're still using a lot of that well that you nectar. also don't harvest honey from the bees primary boxes you harvest for folks who don't know you harvest honey from the box that you put on top during good honey flow seasons and you wouldn't move a you know 100 plus hives in some cases these larger produce you know beekeepers have 10,000 hives with like an extra box on each one <laughs> It would it would add so much to your labor and your you know transport costs that it's really it is symbiotic in that it's good for the bees to be in there, it's good for the almond growers and it's good for the beekeepers. It's just terrible for the environment. So not not everybody can be a winner. Let me take a second to reintroduce us. This is the Farm and Garden Show. I'm your host, Elizabeth Archer. I'm joined today by local beekeeper Carson and Bees, who owns and operates. Oh, no, by Carson Elmer, who owns and operates Carson and Bees. Carson also happens to be my husband, and he's been on the show a couple times, and we always have a nice time talking. If you are listening and you'd like to be a guest on the show, if you're a beekeeper, perhaps, send an email to dj at kzyx.org. I would love to have you on if you are in the farm and gardening realm. I'm going to open the lines. We'll keep talking, but I want to give people enough time to have their questions answered. You can have any questions about beekeeping that your heart desires. 
The phone is 707-895-2448. Give us a call if you want to ask Carson a question, 707-895-2448. While we wait to see if anyone out there has burning questions, can you tell the audience what you had to do in the slushy, muddy, semi-snow the other day in to, to support your bees? <clears throat> yeah, so I went over and checked my hives. Um, but I, like I said earlier, the orchard is not conducive for driving in in wet weather, which is why we put them in early. Um, and so I went over and, and checked on them and gave them some a medication to, to help them. Um, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't get in. I knew that going over, but sometimes you just have to, you got to hike in. And how, how, what, how far was that hike? Well, <laughs> I, I got all the way out there and I, I, I then went to Google maps and looked it up. It was almost a mile and it was muddy and it rainy, was very muddy. <laughs> I was, and you were carrying a bunch of supplies. Yep. And the mud was caking onto my feet. It felt like 10 pounds and every step there was mud flying off. I looked back and every, you could see every step I ever took. And then going back and forth from the hive, (laughs) you know, each, each drop, we, we drop them around the orchard. So it's not just putting them in the orchard in one spot. They get, they get dropped in drops. So for me, I put them in drops of 12, which is three pallets. And the pallets are, you know, four hives per pallet. And so we, we disperse them around the orchard. So on those years, kind of like this year, where if they just barely get any flying time, they don't have to fly as far and they can get the whole orchard covered and if, with pollination. So I had to walk back and forth carrying my supplies as well. Such a glamorous job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our, our big joke um, when I was working for a friend of mine is, um, so you want to be a beekeeper and walk around with tiny insects that sting and hurt. and it's. Where's the worst place to get stung? The nose, the tip of the nose, or the ear. Oof. I, I, there's been a couple times where the in the season where I'm getting stung, you know, several times a day sometimes and just walking in the yard, I've gotten stung and just like in the ear or the nose. And I'm a big guy. It, it will put tears in your eyes. We have a phone call. Let's see if we can hear if Carson can hear the caller in his ears. Oop. Hi, caller. You're live on the air. Hi. Hang on I, a second. I, Oop, hang on just one second. Carson, can you hear that? So barely. I can, no. It's your, okay. I can hear that there's something. Carson's there. earphones aren't working very well. Okay. So, I'll try to speak can uh, you, clearly. Can you hear that, Carson? Or you could maybe repeat. <clears throat> hang on. Repeat. I'm going to do a trick. Okay. Start talking now. Okay. Hi. Oh, man. I'm just going to have to repeat it to him. I'm sorry. It's okay. Anyway, what occurred to me is I was wondering, for the 
you know, it's a, it's a question worth considering if you don't have a, a ready answer. Anyway, for the, for the overall benefit of the health of bees and humans and nature, what would be a good ratio between well-kept bees, you know, we don't want any poorly kept bees, but well-kept bees and free bees? Just wild and free bees. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Carson, okay. how much of that let did me you... Hang, let okay. me hang up so I can hear it on the radio. Okay, great. Thanks for the call. Thanks. How much of that did you hear? Very little. Okay, I'm going to translate it for you while you switch your headphones. We're going to put those ones on. We're going to do a little switcheroo. See if we can make it work. Can you hear me in your headphones now? Negative. Okay. Her question was, what would be a good percentage or split between well-managed bees, emphasis that no one wants poorly managed bees, and sort of wild slash free bees? That... It's kind of a trick question, but I want to hear what you have to say, and then I'm going to weigh in. trick question. I would say right now is a hard time to have wild or feral bees around. And the reason for that is there is a bug that attacks bees. Well, attacks is maybe not the right word, but it lives on the bees and is very detrimental to, um, sorry, she's messing with the microphones, (laughs) distracted me. Uh, It's very detrimental to the hives. And if you don't uh, do anything to mitigate the problems with the Varroa mites, um, it, it, you're kind of spreading mites to everyone around you. And that is kind of what feral hives do. Um, there is a lot of, there is a lot to be said for kind of the natural selection. Uh, and also veromites are kind of like kids with germs. Uh, they love to spread them. So bees will, mites jump on other bees, uh, in the flower, in the fields, when weak hives are getting robbed out. And usually what happens is a weak hive is weak because it has a lots of varroa mites and then strong hives start robbing it out. The mites jump on the strong bees and go back to the strong hives. So you're kind of, I don't have a good answer for you. Well, I think what first popped to my mind is that honeybees are imported livestock and need to be managed like livestock. You wouldn't leave cows to fend for themselves. Whereas you know, bison, for instance, may also maybe not a great example because we do farm them and also have destroyed a lot of their habitat. But there are sort of native species that should be left alone. And then there are livestock that need to be managed. And I, my big concern as a resident of the earth is the rapid decline and in many cases extinction or near extinction of our native pollinators, the pollinators that aren't making anybody any money, whose habitats are being destroyed, whose food sources are being destroyed, who are suffering at the hands of climate change like we all are. And so I think the the percentage balance of, you know, managed hives versus 
native pollinators should be in a perfect world, you know, much more evenly balanced. Or um, honestly, we need more native pollinators than we need um, managed honeybees. But in the case of, you know, loss of pollination, there is a place for commercial beekeepers or even backyard beekeepers to sort of fill some of the gaps that are being left behind by the decline in native pollinators. That said, they don't typically compete. There is almost, you know, if there's somewhere that a native pollinator is living, they're going to be able to get their food resources met if honeybees are also in the area and can get their food resources met. So I don't, it's not a, a competition concern between the two of them. Yeah, there's a lot of research that has been done and a lot of research that is still being done on that competition. And I think Project APSM is one of those places where they are looking looking into that just for that reason. Yeah, Project APSM is awesome. We love them. And just a little side note for them, they they've been around for i want to say 10 or so years and they've just reached the 10 million dar- 10 million dollar mark in um funds that were donated to them hmm. i thought they were bigger than that to be honest i mean i know that 10 million dollars is a lot of money but it's also not a lot of money maybe i'm wrong on the number <laughs> well if they're they're doing a lot with that with that level of funding i want to say that it is completely uh funded by volunteer money it's not funded by grants so it's it's beekeepers and growers putting money in and as well as the general public if you would like to donate to them they have a big donate button on their website i believe i'm sure they do (laughs) (laughs) so that's also that that um that phone call and caller, I hope we answered your question. Sorry for the kind of distraction, distracting, can't quite get the headphones to work situation. I've messed with a couple things, so maybe the next call we'll be able to hear better. I can hear. Um, the difference between managing your hive by treating for varroa <clears throat> mites and not managing your hives for by treating for varroa mites. And there are two different schools of thought here. And I think it's important to talk about both of them. We treat our hives for mites. Um, it's kind of the equivalent of if your dog has fleas, um, having a flea bomb. It's, it's, it's fleas that will kill your dog. Fleas that will kill your dog. Fair, 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 fair. Not just <laughs> uncomfortable. So it's actually called Varroa Destructor because it is so destructive. It has the largest parasite to host size ratio in the world. It's the equivalent of having like a leech the size of a dinner plate on your back. And sometimes bees will have more than one on them. So if you can imagine having two or three dinner plate sized leeches on your body, literally sucking you to death, that is what it's like for bees who have Varroa destructor mites. And there's no way to get rid of them without treating the hive. And because, as Carson said earlier, Bees are like kids and they like to share germs and diseases. Bees are very good at spreading diseases because when a hive is struggling, because it has some sort of disease like 
there's several, but you know, in this case, we'll talk about mites. Other bees, because they're opportunistic, will go into that hive and steal their honey. And in the process, they also pick up mites and bring them back to their hives. So it's very rare for a hive to be totally mite free. So we treat, we recommend that the people we work with treat all commercial beekeepers, um, large scale beekeepers, I would say treat for mites. Yeah, I would say my my biggest pitch is managing mites because you don't have to treat. It's not like a, a weekly thing that you do just every Saturday you go treat. No, it's, it's uh, more of managing the hives. So there's um, you can do mite counts where you, you are taking a, a small sample of the hive and from that sample, you get a percentage and the percentage is the percentage where you have a problem is three mites per hundred bees. Um, and there's new research coming out saying that it's more like closer to two mites per hundred bees and the whole hive has a problem. So it's not very many mites in the hive compared to the bees. And so you don't necessarily have to put harsh, harsh chemicals. The problem is if you do that, you are putting, you're trying to kill a bug on a bug, which is really difficult to do. Oops. Very difficult to do. Not a lot of margin for error. Yeah. So it's, it's not like killing fleas that are, uh, what are fleas? Insect or arachnid? Oh man. I don't know. I don't know. But you're killing a bug on a, a mammal. So it's the chemicals that you use are can be more targeted generally or general targeted to insects and not harm mammals or your dog. That being said, you don't if you're managing your mites, you're you're doing mite counts and making sure that your mites are not out of control and you can go long periods of time without doing any kind of treatment so we are of the the opinion that you should treat and there are beekeepers that raise bees that they have been working on a genetically resistant stock a stock of bee that is naturally or at this point i don't is it it's still natural anyway they're they're breeding for genes that are naturally resistant to the varroa mite and i think there is real value in that and so that brings us to the next topic of the show, I think, and we're happy to answer questions about mites and treatment if you have them. I think since Carson's earphones aren't working, just call in if you have a question and I will relay it to him, 707-895-2448. And hey, if you just tuned in, you're listening to the Farm and Garden Show. I'm your host, Elizabeth Archer. I'm joined live in studio by Carson Elmer, who owns the local beekeeping business, Carson and Bees. And we are talking about bees. So for the last 20 minutes, of the show feel free to call in with questions of any kind but let's talk about the next step of beekeeping um after you know winter time when your bees kind of start to wake up or if you don't have bees spring is when bees really do all of their growth oh we have a call so hold that thought elizabeth me hi caller you're live on the air hello yes what are you using to treat 
Excellent question. I'm going to hang up on you so I can relay that to him and we will answer your question. Great. Thank you. Uh-huh. Carson, the question is, what do you use to treat for mites? There's a lot of different ways to treat for mites. There's uh, oxalic acid. There's apivar, which I believe is an amitraz. There's Amitraz is, very, is the chemical. That's the like pesticide, insecticide. Yeah. That's the that's the big daddy. There's there's another one that's that's kind of harsh, but there are organic um, acids that that you can use. Some people, when uh, screen bottom boards first came out, everybody thought that that was going to be kind of the silver bullet, and the idea is that mites naturally fall off the bees all the time. And if there's a screen bottom board that might falls through and then can't climb back on, it turns out that that is a piece of the puzzle and is only about 14% effective. So yeah. 14% better than nothing. Yeah. Uh, we have some more calls, but basically there's different treatments and you do them at different times throughout the year. And we use organic acids and we also use insecticides for which Carson has an applicator's permit. Hi caller. You're live on the air. Really? I hear them talking. Should I turn my... Yes, please turn your turn radio my... off. Yes, I... Yeah, I was wondering, um, I heard you talking about uh, honeybees and um, their role in pollination. And what we're talking about is the European honeybee, which is a um, social creature like ants, and they live in colonies, so they can be managed. And the reason that they're so important is because of our monocultures, large orchards of apples, oranges, uh, sorry, well, oranges perhaps too, but uh, all the rose family plants, like we're talking about almonds, apples, peaches, plums. When you grow large monocultures, you need a large amounts of pollinators. The native bees, I believe, most of them are solitary. Yes? Yes, that's absolutely true. So they, when you come in with a monoculture, you destroy the environment that was previously there. So you pretty much eliminate all the habitat for the native pollinators who might be able to take up a large uh, chunk of pollination if we weren't trying to grow such huge uh, monocultures of our uh, plants. Yep, So my question is, if the role of of, uh, bees, of the native bees in smaller or diverse um, gardens or mixed um, kind of uh, agricultural systems. They might actually be, and they're probably, I don't know, are they as susceptible to these diseases and like the mites you're talking about? Um, <clears throat> Carson, did you hear that? He came and uh, listened on to my earphones. I kind of <laughs> got a little bit of that. My, what I am. I, uh, the, question the question was. It's mostly about the need for. He can't, sorry, he went back we to have, his. need to have these European bees in large uh, colonies and, and huge amounts is because of the monoculture agriculture we, we're dealing with, yeah. where they need large amounts of pollinators at once, say, like when all the almond trees come into bloom, and, the, and the, most of the native bees who aren't, you can't be managed like this because they mostly live solitarily, um, would never be able to fill that bill. Right. Yep. 
Uh, okay, I'm going to hang up on you, and we will answer your question. Can I ask one more thing? Did uh, you guys see that PBS special about bees that n- guy did last year on, in, um, in England? No. Oh, my God. He just went out and took pictures. He had been doing, I think he did the thing on hummingbirds for them a year or two before, and then with, with the lockdown was on. He got to his backyard, which was just a, a kind of a, a wasteland, a horticultural wasteland, but I should say not very well managed. He found some 30-something species of native bees in this little uh, backyard, I think it was some suburb of London, with the film, and it was absolutely astonishing and beautiful. And there are all these bees that just live on their own, basically, and have all their own personalities and their own habits, and uh, we have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that well, sounds cool. I'll have to, I'll have to check, check that out. Sometime. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you for the program. I, I enjoy listening to you talk. Oh, Thanks. yeah, of course. Thank you so much. Bye. Right, bye. Okay, Carson. <clears throat> the question was... And we had talked a little bit earlier on the show about how the monoculture is absolutely a problem, and it is a problem in so many ways, and one of those ways is that it has destroyed habitat for native pollinators and all sorts of other species as well. It's bad just in a lot of ways. Um, the question was, is there like a symbiotic relationship between managed bees and native bees in backyard gardens, for instance, and are native bees susceptible to the same diseases as managed honeybees? I think there's a lot of area of research there that can be done. And I think there are a few people uh, out there that are trying to look into that. The problem is you, it's hard to keep native bees or even look at native bees because the only way to do that is to go out in nature and manage bees are in a hive and you just go pop the hive lid. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have to check out that PBS special. Okay, the phones are blowing up. Hi, caller, you're live on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, I was calling about the whole idea with um, the bees having diseases that are vectored by the mites to the bees, which is the wing disease, uh, which lessens the life of the bee um, to only four weeks, I understand. And Paul Stamets is doing some great work in this world, and he's made some serums from different mushroom extracts that is uh, healing the bees now. Um, and I don't know if you've heard of that. Have you heard of what he's doing? Um, oops. I haven't, but maybe Carson has. Yeah, Paul I don't Stamets know of the specific people. Things. Yeah. Go ahead, Carson. I don't know of the specific people, but I have heard of people looking into mushrooms and mycelium to help bees. I think mycelium is going to save the world if anything is, so I'm into that. Paul Stamets gave a talk at the at the Bionomics uh, conference or a biodynamic conference somewhere in uh, 2020, and he just... It was just beautiful what he spoke about uh, the new connections they're making with healing bees, with uh, extending the life of a bee to nine weeks. Wow, amazing. you should see Carson's so, face when you said that. Yeah, so it's pretty much amazing what's going on um, with this extract of a mushroom, which is a, the yellow-belted polypore, reishi mushroom, uh, shiitake mushroom, extracts and then they're giving it to the bees in the sugar water um, one drop per hundred drops dilution rate 
and it's healing them and giving them stronger immune systems from the mites, uh, diseases, the, mite, the, the, the things that the mites carry, you know, of course. Cool. Thanks so much for the call. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like the deformed wing virus is a, a virus that is vectored through the varroa mites. Uh, th- that is amazing that they can extend the life of bee, but it'd be nice to also just kind of get rid of the virus so we didn't have that problem. They'll get there. I'm sure they'll figure it out with mushrooms. And I had actually been talking about that last summer with llama of the forest people mushrooms. So maybe solutions like that are coming. Okay, we're getting toward the end of the show. And I wanted to make sure we left enough time to talk about spring beekeeping. Specifically, folks who want to become beekeepers themselves, I actively discourage people from becoming beekeepers. So full disclosure, it is a expensive and heartbreaking hobby but people love to do it and if you want to give it a try i have two options for you but it's really important to know that you if you want to start being a beekeeper you have to do it in the spring this is the only time of year unless you're going to buy someone else's fully formed hive which is very expensive you got to do it in the spring i guess there's three ways actually to get bees the first way is to have your own bee boxes and to bait them with a lemongrass oil and try to catch a swarm which is very unpredictable because you have to have bees really close to your vicinity that are strong enough to swarm and then having your own bees you can split them and which is really just taking frames out of one box and putting it in another I'm talking about new beekeepers, folks who just want to try to be a beekeeper. The easiest, cheapest way, it's not guaranteed, but you can buy bee boxes and you can put a little bit of lemongrass oil spray in there and you might catch a swarm of bees. It's just, I just want people to know. The the mite is pretty big. It's a a big maybe. If you don't have uh, boxes with drawn out comb, it's really difficult. Carson doesn't want you to have free bees. (laughs) No, Carson's a realist. Um, The second way is to buy them. And so we sell them. This is not an advertisement for us, but you can buy them from us. You can go to our website, carsonandbees.com. They are bees that have been treated for varroa mites. And then you also, if you're someone who is not into treating and you want to try your hand at some of those bees that have been um, bred for genetics that are naturally resistant to varroa, there is a person in Sonoma County who also sells bees, and that is April lancebees.net so first name april last name lancebees.net and she is also selling bees and those are not treated in any way for varroa so something for everybody for all values and you know hopes and desires when it comes to beekeeping so just in the last couple minutes we are going to talk about kind of what's happening with the bees from now until April or May. So what happens when you pick your bees up from the Central Valley in a couple weeks? Well, hopefully they're busting at the seams with lots of bees and needing more boxes. And at that point, we can split them and, and make new hives. But it's it's a time of rapid growth. The growth is exponential right now. Uh, a hive can double in size in a month and a half if if things are conditions are right 
so they're 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 growing now the, even hives that are kind of small can 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 grow to a size to produce honey this year why do you split hives other than then you have two or more hives and that's good for if you're a commercial beekeeper and you're trying to produce honey and you're trying to build more hives to take to almond pollination next year why else do you split hives it's it's our way of controlling swarms so if a hive gets too big and fills the boxes that it's in its natural tendency is wanting to reproduce the queen is constantly laying eggs and if they've filled the box then they go okay we need to split and and they swarm and then your bees fly off into your neighbor's bee boxes if and, they have them set up <laughs> and we like to keep those bees okay we have another call hi caller you're live on the air hi there i wanted to let everyone know that carson is going to be giving the beginning beekeeping talk on uh, the second Thursday of the month, the 9th, at the Fort Bragg Library. It's the Mendocino Coast Beekeepers Group. We were going to say that. Thank you so much for oh, beating, beating us to the punch. Okay, good. And I just wanted to make sure and let everybody know that it's a great um, informal group of people. Um, unfortunately, it is on the coast, but maybe eventually we can get something started inland again. So anyway, thank you. Thank you for the Six call. Six o'clock. Six o'clock, Fort Bragg Library, second Thursday. Awesome. Okay. Take care. So Carson and I actually met 11 years ago at the Inland Mendocino County Beekeeping Club at a bee meeting. But unfortunately, that club doesn't meet anymore. However, the Coastal Club is awesome. Um, and if you have any interest in learning more, it's a very you know wonderful, supportive group of people. Carson is speaking there next Thursday, but they always have an awesome variety of topics and speakers. And that is at the Fort Bragg Library on the second Thursdays of the month at 6 p.m. All right, down to the wire, Carson. You got like two minutes left before I have to transition to the next, next, uh, next show. So, final thoughts for people who are interested in being beekeepers. Final thoughts. Uh, this is the the time of year to do it. Uh, things are blooming. The bees are busy, which means also us beekeepers are very busy. And if you have questions and want to meet in person, uh, you can come to the Fort Bragg Library next Thursday. We will be there. Cool. Well, thank you, Carson, as always, for joining me on the Farm and Garden Show. I do like having you as a guest. It's always an interesting show, and I think listeners get a lot out of it, too. There's kind of an endless number of hours I feel like we could fill talking about bees. So you're the ideal repeat guest. We could have a show every week, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> if you have been listening and enjoying the Farm and Garden Show and you're interested in being a guest, please send me an email, dj at kzyx.org. Or if there are any specific topics that you would like me to discuss or people you'd like me to interview, send me an email, put Farm and Garden in the title, and I would love to make that happen for you. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back in two weeks with another show. Until then, enjoy the sun, followed by lots more rain. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. 
KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.